G'day and welcome back to another episode of the Beyond the Fence podcast. We are here to talk all about a stunning and brave Women's World Cup and a really awesome tournament from the Matildas that ended in heartbreak. My name is Ben Boyata and joining me, as always, when we talk about soccer, we should actually, we should establish now, is it soccer or football? Uh, here we go, football. All right, let's go football. That was the voice of Ben Smith from the People's Republic of Western Australia. Back again, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well on this fine Sunday afternoon. I've just watched the Boomers win. You've just watched West Coast screw up a number one pick, so I think we're on different ends of the spectrum here. <laughs> oh, look, I mean, I think I think for a, uh, I think Eagles needed a win just for morale, especially after losing the Derby by 100-odd points last week. Um, yeah, I think as much as like the number one pick is you know so sought after like i think you don't you never want to be encouraging losses your team to lose right i mean most of my teams have been crap most of my life yeah. only I, was, I was just thinking i was just thinking wrong person to ask about this <laughs> I, don't, I don't know any different outside of like the last three years um no but speaking of uh not losing i mean the women's world cup has been I think it's surpassed even our wildest expectations, not just for what it's done for the sport in this country, but just the actual overall spectacle of the whole thing. You've seen, I think my main source of, not scepticism, but I think hesitation going into the tournament was just how we get around the non-Australian games. But, I mean, there's been sellout crowds in the knockouts. They've been getting 70-odd thousand for... I think that, that England-Columbia game was packed out in... in Brisbane, I want to say, or Sydney. Oh, no, that was in Sydney. But, I mean, it's just been an absolutely outrageous event overall. Yeah, and I think a lot of people... Like, a lot of people travelled for this tournament, right? Like, you know, we saw the Colombians travelled in mass. Like, a lot of English uh, fans, uh, the Americans, you know, were, you know, turned out in great numbers. And then, you know, we've, I think we also, like, forget just how multicultural uh, Australia is. Like, there are a lot of Irish people in... Uh, in Perth, for example. So when the Irish played Canada, it was just like, I'd say at least it felt like the majority of the crowd were Irish and there was like 15,000 people. And it was, um, yeah, it was a good time for everyone. (laughs) Did did you get to go to all the Perth games? I did. I covered all five Perth games, um, which was, yeah, a really good experience. Um, I don't think... Perth had great games. There were moments within each, you know, each and every Perth game which were great. Like, you know, the opening game, China Denmark wasn't a great game, but you know, not, it felt like seventy percent of the crowd were Chinese, and like it was just like every time China got on the ball, like it was very loud. Um, and then Denmark got a late winner at the end. Uh, you know, Ireland versus Canada, we had the Katie McCabe Olympico inside like two minutes. Uh, which was like just an awesome moment. Um, you know, Jamaica beat Panama, which, you know, again, wasn't a great game, but it was Jamaica's like, you know, first winner to, you know, one of their, uh, yeah, I think it was their first ever winner at a World Cup and, you know, ended up helping them get past uh, Brazil and get out of the group. And then, uh, you know, Denmark uh, beat Haiti as well, which, you know, got them their, their spot in the, uh, in the, in the second round. And then um, Colombia, Morocco, uh, you know, about 80% of a crowd, Colombian, like they did not stop singing and chanting the entire game. One of the best atmospheres I've been a part of. And then Morocco won uh, and were waiting for the end of the Germany game after, you know, after the final whistle, all huddled on a pitch, watching on a phone. 
And uh, yeah, and then that moment when it was confirmed that Germany had somehow managed to draw with South Korea and Morocco were going through after being smashed 6-0 by Germany in the opening game was... It was just nuts. It's like, is that something, <laughs> that's something I'll remember for the rest of my life as well, just for the pure joy from Moroccan players, like the way they just exploded when they realised, like they just ran in every different direction, didn't know what to do. It was, yeah, it was beautiful. And then, you know, obviously we've had the Matildas as well. Like it's um, no, no games in Perth, unfortunately, but just watching from afar and getting to be in the stadium on Saturday night when they beat, uh, well, when they lost to England, unfortunately, but seeing that Sam Kerr goal again, that's something that's going to stick with me for the rest of my life too. Yeah, I remember those scenes, when, specifically the Moroccans watching yeah, huddled around the phone and then just the, the joy. Obviously, no games in Hobart, so I wasn't planning on going to any of them just because I didn't think it would be I would be around for any of them. But then as it happened, I went away the other week and I got back to Sydney on the Sunday night and it, it worked out that the the semi the quarter the round of sixteen against Denmark I just happened to be in town for it and somehow I know you've probably dealt with the resale site but somehow managed to get <laughs> a couple of last minute last minute tickets on that one. I didn't get them, my friend got them and I think she ended up getting tickets for about four different people and we were just scattered all throughout the stadium. I was with like one other mate, then there was another two sitting on a, in another stand and another two up in the tier above us just I mean that resale, resale site was a complete <laughs> uh, yeah. shambles but yeah to, to, to be in that stadium like just to ex- to get that experience of a full stadium Australia when and I mean I'll never forget the, the roar when ca- the Mary Fowler hit that pass for, for Ford and because that was at the end that I was sitting at and you just see because the angle I was at you couldn't really tell what was going to happen because we were kind of in line with Ford and then you just see the ball hit the back of the net. Oh, it was just absolute delirium. It was just one of the great Australian sporting things that I've ever been a part of. Obviously, I'm a bit too young to really remember 05 um, or the Sydney Olympics, but just that that whole game was a real celebration atmosphere. It was just awesome. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I only got to, in terms of Matilda's games, uh, I, you know, I did only got to experience that semi-final but you know that was a you know that was excellent and like like that, that Sam Kerr goal just came out of nowhere and um, I just remember you know jumping up in the press box and kind of looking around and going like what did that actually just happen like it just kind of it just came out of nowhere it was just pure like undistilled magic um, and I think everyone around the stadium was having a similar reaction and yeah it was um, yeah like the, the atmosphere i it's been very interesting listening to like the overseas perspective. And um, I think Alex Chidiak even kind of mentioned it in a, um, in a post game match, like the, uh, the atmosphere inside the stadiums has been when it's loud, it's really loud, but it also subsides quite quickly. Like it's, you look at like South American and European football culture, like the noise is like constant the entire game. Whereas uh, a lot of people kind of pointed out uh, from overseas that like in Australia, because there's, a, I guess, a bit more like casual fans at games and um, there's people who aren't maybe, weren't brought up in that football culture. Like there's less singing and chanting throughout the game. It gets loud when something big happens, but then it kind of goes quiet very quickly. So uh, that's that was actually something I hadn't yeah. really thought too much about, um, you know, coming into the tournament. But that was uh, an interesting insight I picked up. And uh, But yeah, like, like, it's, like I said, when it was loud, it was really, really loud. 
Speaking of atmosphere and, and noise and different aspects of the footballing culture around the world, you've obviously seen a bit of the, the police state around the flares and the celebrations at some of the live sites and all that sort of stuff. Uh, did you see the... So there, there was a clip going around where... So Dan Andrews has said, I don't think the Matildas would want any of our fans behaving like that. And then there's a clip from, I think it's The Project that Ellie Carpenter's appeared yeah. on and they're just doing a rapid fire yes, no and then someone asks Ellie Flares, Flares yes or no and she's like oh hell yeah <laughs> so I mean yeah. I just thought that was, a, that was a funny juxtaposition of the whole thing I, I mean I think, but it's true like it's it like yeah I think the whole thing with Flares is as long as you're safe with them 100% go for it but unfortunately like everything in society there are people who have no idea like what safety is or and, and are just like brain dead and like i'm gonna throw a flare into a crowd and you know not completely not understanding that it's a really hot thing which could cause burns and just like people who you know people who use flares need to be responsible with them like because at the end of the day like they can burn people like this is this is a fact like this isn't a just like oh you might hurt someone it's like no they actually can't like they are like they are hot. Like, you can... People have been burnt in the past by flares. Like, you need to be careful with them. And this is the thing. Like, if you're, if, if you're just going to rip flares and hold them, and, like, that's, a, that's great. It looks, looks great, adds colour, adds atmosphere, looks amazing. But, like, the moment that you start... It's like any thing in life, really. Just, like, just don't be a dick to other human beings. Like, think about, would I like it if someone did this to me? Like, it's basically that simple. And if you are, like, holding a flare and you can't abide by that, then you should have your flare rights taken away from you. Your flare card revoked. How, how who among, how are we meant to know that flares are, are hot? Like, <laughs> what, what could possibly lead us to that fact? It's definitely not the smoke coming off them, that's for sure. Are you telling me if I have a gun... It, that's fine, but I, as soon as I shoot the gun, I'm the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Gun, pe- people don't kill people. Guns kill people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we, <laughs> we're getting too into the weeds here. Let's go back to before the tournament. I think there was a bit of a... So the, the Matildas had their squad announced, and there was a little bit of... Not, uh, I don't want to say confusion, but I guess some questions asked about some of the inclusions. But I guess... From a more general point of view, was there anything, if you can remember back to when this when this happened, when you saw the squad, were you like, oh, I'm surprised she's got in or she's not in? I think, like, the obvious one's Kaya Simon. Like, that was, that stood out at the time. And I think at the time, it was just like, oh, this is a cool little story. Like, Kaya Simon coming back from an ACL, like, 10, 9 months ago to make the World Cup squad. That's really cool. Um, and then, I think even, like, in the kind of squad announcement, um, Tony Gustafson was like, we can replace her up until like, uh, like the day before the tournament sort of thing. So if she doesn't quite respond, you know, to um, you know, if she if she suffers a setback or something, we can like call someone else in, like like maybe a Remy Samson or something. Um, and I believe she had a, I think it was reported uh, overnight that she actually did have a setback during the tournament, which forced her to to miss time. Um, and obviously, you can't replace the player once she's in the tournament and. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, it's one of those things where it's like, like going into the tournament, it was kind of acceptable. And then like, in hindsight, it's like that she probably shouldn't have been part of the squad. And that 
I mean, that would have sucked for Kaya, who has been such a big part of Matildas for the past decade, who, you know, has had so many memorable moments in a Matildas jersey. Um, and, you know, it was obviously playing at a high level, like, um, before, you know, before this World Cup, before she tore her ACL. So it's not like she stuck out like a sore thumb and she absolutely shouldn't have been there. But uh, like the fact that, you know, I'm sure we'll get into the subs and the, la- and the, the lack of the usage of the depth that was kind of parroted pre-tournament. Um, well, you know, Sam Kerr just got injured, you know, a day before the tournament started. And, you know, it would have been really handy to have another striker. And it's like, well, Kai Simon's not quite fit yet and probably won't be fit into the knockout stages. And then uh, by all reports, it sounds like she, she had a bit of a setback during the tournament. It was just like, it's a, sno- a snowball effect, right? Like um, Simon was the big, yeah. like Simon, obviously the big one heading in, that kind of raised eyebrows, but like going in, you know, vibes are good. And it's like, Oh no, I see the, th- I understand the thinking and like now it's still a risk, but you know, I can understand the rationale from Gustafsson's, uh, you know, point of view and, you know, the way he's explained it. If you were Tony G, would you have just straight up selected Samson instead of Simon? Yeah, I think so. Like I probably would have, um, but then again, you know, like he has access to like, uh, you know, he has a lot more knowledge and insider information in terms of, you know, how these players, uh, like how Kaya's ACL uh, was recovering. And, you know, I mean, I pro- I've i been a big fan of Remy Samson, you know, since she was in the A-League women. So I probably would have taken her. But but I also haven't really watched her too much when she's been playing, um, you know, in the WSL for, for Leicester. So I can't really be like, I can't say of any, like, you know, authority that like she was definitely the right choice because obviously, you know, like I just haven't watched her enough um, in the WSL. I just wonder if there's any element of future planning around a selection like that. I think if you look at the Men's World Cup and some of the players we took to that, like Garen Quall or even Daniel Arzani four years, five years ago, whatever it was now, I just wonder, and I, like Samson's not as young as those guys were when they got their World Cup selection but I just wonder considering I guess the age of some of our other forwards whether there was whether there should have been any should have been any element of you know future planning like well at least it's that old trope of just getting them around the squad like the Theo Walcott theory (laughs) Theo Walcott theory that's what we're calling it now Um, yeah I mean well it's topical he's retired this week get him him I know I did see that Uh, very sad uh uh I was about to go off on a tangent about Thera Walcott for a second. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think when you look at the squad profile, like there were some like young players in there, like Mary Fowler's obviously very young, and uh, Kira Cooney Cross is only twenty one. Ellie Carpenter's only twenty three. Uh, yeah, there's still like a fair few like youngish players in the squad that I guess. Toady would point to and go, well, you know, here's me trying to blood for next generation sort of thing. But like, I can understand the Kaya Simon thing at the time, but in retrospect, it's just, it's unfortunate for Kaya and, you know, like, I mean, it was, I don't think it was the difference between Australia winning World Cup and Australia losing World Cup, but it is something which, you know, should be scrutinised. No, yeah, I'm not saying... Well, you never look. You never know. But no, no, I'm not saying that. That there's like it's like that whole sliding doors, where the, you know they take seams and she scores a winner against um, England, and then you know 
we're here previewing a World Cup final instead of being a couple of sad boys about what could have been. <laughs> um, you, you did you, you did touch on Sam Kerr's injury, and I think look if there was if there was any real way to pop a, a balloon full of a nation's hope, seeing that news filter through an hour or whatever it was before the kickoff of the first game. Um, Sam Kerr's done her calf. She's going to be reevaluated, which is never a nice word in sport. Reevaluated after the second group game. I mean, that that almost got a lot of people off the bandwagon right from the start. There was an element of like, oh shit, here we go again. Yeah, like it was literally announced when the first uh, when the team lineup came out. Like there were, and it just came out of nowhere as well. It wasn't like, oh, Sam Kerr is like there wasn't whispers of it like. In the, you know, in the hours leading up, it wasn't like people were reporting. I've heard Sam Kerr's injured, like, um, but and she might not start today. Like, it, like there was no reports that you know she she might miss the World Cup or anything. It was literally just like team lineup. Oh, why is Sam on the bench? And then it's like she has a and then Football Australia immediately after announced that she had a calf injury and would be out for at least the first two games. And it was like, oh, uh, like. Yeah, I mean, it was just shock, really. I mean, uh, like, I don't think... Yeah, it was just... It was one of those, like... It just ha- it just felt like... You know, I was saying to um, to a couple of people on the way out of a stadium on, uh, on Wednesday after the semi-final, like, Sam was meant to be the face of this tournament and then she had it, you know, completely derailed by injury and uh just like it was horrible horrible yeah this was meant to be her tournament uh you know she was the face of a tournament coming in and the fact that she was sidelined through no fault of her own was just heartbreaking and you know as much as it was you know as sad as it was to lose to england uh, in the semi-final at least we got one sam kerr moment which we'll all remember for the rest of our lives like that was and Sam, and Sam has that moment now as well. Like she, you know, has something to remember this World Cup by in terms of on-field contribution, which was you know that was a really important thing for me. And that was just like, thank God that we, um, you know, she got that. You know, from a personal level. Like I know she said like post-game, I don't care that I scored. Like I'm just gutted we lost. But like at least she got to like she gave the nation a moment that we'll never forget. And I'm glad that she was able to you know, to physically contribute that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was like, I was going to say the same thing, I guess. I was just really, like, obviously the overall circumstances of the game sucked, but I said to a few people, I'm just really glad she at least, yeah, had that moment. I'm just going to repeat what you said, basically, but the way how she was marketed as, you know, she was, she's, she's the face of, not even the World Cup, she's the face of women's football, I think. One of, like, Consider that she was the first ever woman on the cover of the global version of FIFA, not just a regional thing. That's a huge deal. And then to have your own home World Cup, to be the face of that, and then to effectively be reduced to a, a rotation member up until the biggest game of the tournament and probably the biggest game of your career, I think. I know she's won trophies at Chelsea and she's played in Olympic medal matches and previous World Cups and all that stuff, but I don't think there's any argument that this that game was the biggest of her career and to to do Sam Kerr things like we know and then you go back to that video of like it's a goat and it flips the Sam Kerr highlights <laughs> just I'm really glad that she got that one 
shining moment where she at least got to show up in front of Australia and in front of a global audience because, you know, we've seen the viewing numbers just in Australia from the last two games of the tournament. I think, I forget if it was the, I think it's the England game, right, where they, they estimate that it reached, was it 11 million people in the country? So to do to do that in front of 11 million people, and look, I don't really know how TV numbers are calculated, but that's still very special. Does does anyone know how TV numbers are actually calculated? Well, I don't want to look behind that curtain, no. <laughs> but I feel like someone just picks a number, it's like, that'll work. Like, yeah, let's just, yeah, it was roughly 11 million. No notes. <laughs> Please show your work. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. Ignoring the number, it's at least, you know, the the biggest event in Australian sports since mm. what they're saying since Kathy Freeman, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I think the uh, the ratings model that they use in was kind of came in in 2001 was what I heard. So, uh, obviously, like a year after. Yeah. Kathy. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I'm trying to think of all, like, the big moments in Australia, like, on Australian soil type thing since then. And like, like the Rugby World Cup final in 2003 was obviously, you know, very big, but it was like not quite the same level that, you know, the Women's World Cup has brought. And, you know, even though Australia did very well in that tournament, made the final, like, yeah, it just had a different feel to it. And I'm not sure it kind of wrapped up the entire nation in the same way that this has. And, you know, there's plenty of reasons for that, you know, football being a bit more of a global game. And also the fact that I think social media helps as well, like just in terms of like people seeing the highlights on like TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and and like the people going to the gathering, public gathering sites and just sharing their videos of like post for France game, whatnot. And yeah, like it, I think that all kind of had a bit of an effect on like how many people it reached. Yeah, I think they said that the Kathy Freeman thing reached... 22 million people which is funny because we didn't have that many people back then I no idea um yeah it's all it's all hearsay it's all like you know you can't prove them wrong history is written by the victors so it's like uh it's like mac Um, from it's like mac mac from it's always sunny whereas like that doesn't sound right but i don't know about enough about this subject to like tell you you're wrong (laughs) (laughs) all that clear it's like i'm playing both sides so i always come out on top (laughs) yeah um, let, let's talk about some actual football now. And I think despite the Sam Kerr injury, I think everyone looked at the group and went, okay, Ireland and Nigeria are teams that we should be able to take care of without her. And then Canada will be the big test. And then we get to the Ireland game. And I, th- I think I said at the time, maybe the Sam Kerr news just kind of got to them a little bit. Maybe the occasion got to them a little bit. I don't know, but the Island game was just a really scrappy, sordid affair, escaped with a penalty, um, and then obviously didn't look much better against Nigeria. Obviously, they lost. And then I think you're starting to ask some questions about, oh my God, are we really going to be bundled out of our own World Cup in a group stage where we should, on paper, be comfortably at least the second best team? I mean, there was some serious doubts and some worry and criticism about the tactics, about the formation about just how we were playing. It was a really dark time for that World Cup. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, the Canada game, like like you say, I think maybe nerves the occasion kind of got to some of the players. Like I thought Mary Fowler in particular looked really nervy that game and what was a bit kind of off the pace. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like the Nigeria game was unacceptable really. And it was just, like both the Nigeria and um, Canada game just felt like they, sorry, Nigeria and Ireland game just felt like they were content with these kind of long hit and hope balls you know very direct there wasn't too much in terms of build-up play uh so yeah i mean like i was really worried after the, the nigeria game um you know even the goal that emily van egmont scored it came off the nigeria like screw up from a goal kick broken passage of football and then they obviously scored from a set piece late but the defending was was really really bad um and like i mean obviously like we got that's without even getting into like the the whole stuff with the subs and Claire Polkinghorne being thrown on when they were chasing, you know, a goal. And it was just like, why is the first port of call when you're chasing the game a veteran centre-back? And Alana Kennedy is now, like, going up top. And it's... But, like, that was... It really did feel like the world was ending. Like, and it felt like we were heading out of our, you know, our own tournament on home soil. And then the Canada game happened. And, you know, as, you know, I think... Tony Gustafson deserves a lot of credit for the fact that there was a very marked kind of change in style and approach before, you know, um, between the Nigeria and the Canada game and the, the fact that they, they played completely different against Canada. And again, like, you know, maybe part of that is Canada a bit more, you know, were a bit more ball dominant. Like Australia didn't have a ball as much. So they just sat back, leaned into the counterattack a bit more and it benefited them greatly. And, you know, they taught, they absolutely tore Canada shreds. Like Steph Catley and Caitlin Ford in that game were, they were unstoppable. Mary Fowler was really good. Katrina Gorry was fantastic. That was Ellie Carpenter's best game of the tournament as well. Um, uh, yeah, like that, the difference between post Nigeria game and post Canada game was just incredible. And, you know, like I think for all the criticism, you know, Tony deserves for the Nigeria game. He also deserves a lot of credit for the way they played. The, the very distinct like change in style that they kind of took on uh, against Canada. Yeah, and I, I am guilty of falling into a little bit of a doomsday mindset when it comes to these sort of things. But I was I was telling people because obviously I've watched the Olympics and I know how good Canada can be. They're obviously the reigning Olympic champions. And I was telling people, oh my God, if we serve up what we've just dished up against Nigeria against Canada, we're, we're going to be, we're going to lose 5-0. Um, it's just, there's no two ways about it. Like, even if Sam Kerr does play, she's probably not going to be ready. You know, our defending's all over the place. Canada have great attackers. And then, yeah, none of that happened. And I think, I think there's some reports that Canada, the, the players aren't exactly in love with their association at the moment. So maybe they were just uh, preoccupied with other matters elsewhere. But yeah, I, I just can't remember such a free-flowing attacking game. Like you said, Ford and Catley, who I think provided a lot of really good stuff for us down the left in the early parts of the tournament, they they absolutely tore Canada to shreds and it continued into the Denmark game. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but yeah, like the way that we played against... Ireland and against Nigeria where it was defensive it was we were a little bit unsure a little bit timid I was kind of left wondering if we were able to change our mindset and change our aggressiveness to to be a little bit more direct um but yeah like you said Tony deserves a hell of a lot of 
credit for that turnaround and just really, you know, putting a positive spin on what was a really tough first two games and just finding a really good solution. Obviously, we'll get to what happened later on. But yeah, I mean, I think that Canada game was absolutely one of the highs of our tournament. Yeah, for sure. And I will, you know, just touching on that as well. Like, I think after the Nigeria game, a lot of people being like, I don't want to hear any criticism of the team. Like, now they need our support more than ever. And it's like, no, like, you... Like, <laughs> I I'm, I work as a journalist. I My job is to be critical. My job is to put things under the, the microscope. And, like, the job that Tony Gustafsson did in terms of that Nigeria game was not good enough. And he deserves criticism for that. And, you know, like... But people who are just like you, if you you either support the team or you don't, and it's like no, you can support the team by asking valid questions and being and being like like not all criticism comes from a nasty place. I think a lot of criticism comes from a place of like I care about this team and want to see them do their best. Like it's not like I'm being critical of this team because I want them to fall. It's like no, I want this team to achieve their best. Like if I wanted, if I didn't care about a team, I would just simply not watch. Like this is. This is, at the end of the exactly. day, this is the um, thing. Like, and yeah, just like, like the whole kind of like rhetoric around like cheerleading, like just cheerleading for a team. Like, you know, like I really wanted them to beat England. And I will admit like that England semi-final, I, I don't think I've ever been that biased in a press box before. It was really like weird. I think <laughs> I was just, I think I was, I was just so stressed. I spent my whole game like swearing to myself and I think I like when Lauren when Lauren Hemp scored. I think I went, oh fuck off. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> and you know, but like that was also just like, well, England were better. Like on the day, like Hemp and Russo and um, and Tooney were and Toon rather were all like really good in that game. That's why England won. It wasn't like me being like I hate England or like I was just like, well, the Matildas just didn't play good enough. Like I wasn't. Well, part of it is. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, you, you are you are absolutely preaching to the choir about the whole um, cheerleading mindset, and it's just it, it's my biggest pet peeve in sport. That and it's not just the Matildas; it's just all sport in general. I don't know if you, I don't know if you're a purveyor or an enjoyer of uh, the odd fan uh, group on Facebook, but back when the Penrith Panthers were really bad in like the early 2010s or so, like where they were pretty much you know, a good, a good, you know, if they were finishing 12th, that was a great season, like that sort of era. And you go on a Facebook group and you'd be like, I can't believe the people that come in here and criticize the boys, you know, you wouldn't say that to their face. Like, well, A, no, I wouldn't because I don't see them. I don't stalk them. But also <laughs> just because you are upset, like as I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and go, I pay my money. I have a right to abuse them. That's not true. That's not what I'm saying, but it's, you know, like you said, criticism doesn't mean, unless you're Kobe Thatcher, it doesn't mean that you want the team <laughs> to fail or that you have some really weird ulterior motive against them or you just don't like, you know, completely irrelevant things about them. Like, criticism inherently comes from a place of wanting to improve and it comes from a place of caring. And so that what that's what frustrates me about the whole so proud mindset. Yeah. And look, We'll get to this later. I'm not going to sit here and com- you know complete my thesis now, um, but but you know criticism doesn't mean you, you you know you're being a negative Nancy and like taking joy in a team failing just so you can say yeah look I told you so like it's the complete opposite. But we'll get to that later because I have 
things to say because that, that's kind of going to be our or my anyway uh let's say my, my thesis headline my abstract i don't know <laughs> whatever the term is for that um yeah no you've opened a can of worms there I'm glad you did it, not me <laughs> let's not open that door just yet <laughs> no no we'll, we'll get there um things i cannot complain about though is that game against denmark and that was probably the most comfortable i have been watching a game of football for the matildas maybe ever like not including you know like a a cup of nations game against vietnam or something but the way that we bossed that game like outside of Pamela harder just getting the ball and running in our defense where i was a bit like oh i obviously i watched chelsea i know what she can do like this is please close her down yeah but other than that you know just completely froze Denmark out of the game and then like some of the like that first goal just chef's kiss yeah um I actually thought Denmark I watched so I watched two Denmark games when they were in Perth and I didn't wasn't really like that impressed with them like they seemed to be very like direct and long balls and I thought China like especially defense Kind of funny, like, praising China's defence because they conceded six goals against England, but I thought in that China-Denmark game, they did a really good job of just, like, suffocating the supply lines to harder and, and like, the two central midfielders, Katrine Kuhl and uh, Josephine Hasbo. Uh, and they just basically, like, had to go along because they couldn't, like, work their way around, um, de- like, China's press. And then, like, it opened up a bit in the second half and they still weren't generating chances. So I actually... And, like, even against Haiti, I didn't think that Denmark bossed that game by any stretch of imagination. So I entered that um, Australia-Denmark game thinking, oh, I'm pretty confident, like, Australia will, be, will win quite comfortably here. And then I thought the first half an hour, Denmark were a better team, and we were, you know, really struggling to get a foothold in. Uh, Harder looked dangerous. You know, she's such a good player. Uh, and we were, like, down the left-hand side as well, Katrina Vaya, I think her name is, um, from left back. She was fantastic in that game and all tournament for me. Uh, Katrine Cool is the sort of player I really like watching as well, just like very tidy, good footwork in midfield. And then that Caitlin Ford goal happens off this, you know, this wonderful ball from Mary Fowler, who um, I'm sure we'll get to her a bit later. But yeah, like the Caitlin Ford goal happens and then all of a sudden, like, just took the sting out of a game. And I think Denmark had a good, patch to open the second half and then just I think they ran out of legs and Australia just saw that game out very comfortably like I don't think it was in a great uh Australia performance but they were just kind of able to take care of business and uh and they you know they struck when they needed to uh, a couple of goals on the counter-attack and it was like you know once that second goal went in like you just tell okay this game's over like there's no way Denmark are coming back yeah, it was a bit of a party atmosphere, bit of party time after Razzo's goal. Um, I, I guess where it comes from, where, like that first half hour, like you said, I, having watched Australia through the group stages, I think, at least to me, our key weaknesses were just dealing with direct threats in defence and then also just turning easy ball over in midfield and getting overrun in midfield. Um, and so to see the way, you know, Pernilla Harder would pick up these balls deep and then just run at the defence. Like, like, this girl's come top three in Ballon d'Or vote voting, right? So, we know what she's all about. She's signed for Bayern Munich now, I believe. So, she's got undoubted quality. And then, I, to me, that there was almost a, a sense of, like, when, not if, 
Denmark scored. But then, yeah, I mean, it just completely shifted. Mary Fowler picks up a ball. I assumed, after watching that pass, that Mary Fowler was left-footed. Her penalty against France destroyed that thought. Um, But just the way she picked it up, just took one look up, an inch perfect. I'm happy to talk about Mary Fowler now, because that was just an absolute freak of a performance from her. Great pass. Like, the finish from Caitlin Ford was tidy. A bit of a nutmeg, which I didn't see at the time. But it's like... I forget who tweeted. I think it was Sam Lewis tweeted the whole stadium when they saw the replay on the big screen. There's like that collective sigh when you've all yeah. seen a moment of just complete oh, filth. Like yeah, just like that's also like that collective like oh my god, what did we just say? Sort of thing. that's yeah. And I'm glad you know like she yeah, it's I, like yeah. She started a tournament. I think like she obviously I didn't think she was great against the Irish, and then she missed. Uh, you know, she missed the Nigeria game with a concussion. And then she came back against Canada and was like, she was pretty good against Canada. And then Denmark, I think, I think I said she was the best player on the pitch against Denmark. Uh, and, um, yeah, like against Denmark, she was fantastic. I missed most of the France game because I was at a, um, I was at a wedding, unfortunately, but I, I say, unfortunately, it was a good wedding. Um, I was very happy to be there. But uh, just her penalty against I hope France. I don't like, listen to this. <laughs> oh, like I'm, Aaron already knows my. Uh, I mean, Aaron the groom came in to watch the penalty shootout with us once he'd had his photos taken. So like, he he was on, he was <laughs> like he was on on board with the World Cup. Uh, it's just one of those things where like he book, he's obviously booked for wedding way before World Cup and yeah. Uh, but yeah, like that Mary Fowler yeah. penalty against France was just fantastic and. You know, like she hit it so hard, like the guts to do that at like 20, 21 years old and just be like, I'm putting this like in the bottom corner, like, and there's nothing you can do to stop this penalty. That That's like insane. And even against England, I thought she was probably Australia's best against England. And she probably, she had moments against Sweden in the third, in the bronze medal match. But ultimately, I think she just kind of ran out of legs, which, you know, wasn't her fault. She played most of that tournament. Yeah, and I mean, look, she she debuted for the Matildas at the age of 15, one of the youngest ever. And just to see her growth in the last few years, it it takes a lot of mental fortitude to be tagged from such a young age as, you know, the next big thing, the, the next hope, pretty much the, the heir apparent to Sam Kerr, right? And I think this tournament for Fowler, she had a decent Olympics, but like not a huge contributor. But this tournament was in my mind a real coming of age for not only her, but also, I think we'll talk about them both now, but also Kyra Cooney-Cross. And I think moving forward with those two, you know, Mary Fowler's still 20, Cooney-Cross is 21. I think Mary Fowler needs to be playing, and obviously I'm not in charge of decisions at Man City, but if they catch this tape, please play Mary Fowler more. (laughs) She's got, I think, 11 appearances in the WSL for them. I think if Alana Kennedy can't get in some strong words about playing Mary Fowler more, then we need to get her out of there. They've already lost Hayley Rasser. They, they clearly don't deserve our talents. But Kyra Cooney-Cross, I will be very disappointed if... Because every World Cup, men's or women's, there comes a couple of players that they have the tournament of their lives and they earn a move off the back of that. I think the best example is... I think it was the 2014 Men's World Cup and Yeri Mina got a move to Barcelona off the back of his performances for Colombia. And they just turned out to be a complete spud. But the, the fact <laughs> is, he still had a great tournament and earned a move. And I would be 
extremely disappointed if Kyra Cooney Cross is still playing for Hammerby this season because I think she has the quality to play in the WSL. I've become a campaign of tweeting Chelsea women every day to sign her. So we'll see how that goes. I know it's worked for other sports locally. I don't know if reach happens internationally, but for me, I think over the, the course of the tournament, there were other players that had high points throughout, but I think Cooney Cross, and we'll get to this later, but one of our players of the tournament, just her directness in midfield, her willingness to get the ball and just push forward was something that we were lacking. And I really want to see her in a, in a big league next year just to, to keep pushing forward. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you... Well, first of all, just wanted to circle back to your point about Alana Kennedy. Alana Kennedy is not the sort of person I'd ever want to disagree with because she, like, like watching, her, <laughs> watching her at this tournament, like, you know when she's angry. Like, obviously, pre-tournament, she had that, like, mid-game dust-up with Eugenie Les on there. Mm. Um, you know, she looks... If looks could kill, like, Alana Kennedy could straight up, like, just murder a bloke. Like, she is... Has that kind of, like... Uh, aggression which you know like I actually thought you know we missed over the last two games of the tournament I actually from a like absolutely from a ta- like I don't th- from a tactical point of view I don't think we missed her against England because I thought Claire Polkenhorn did a pretty good job but as someone kind of pointed out Alana Kennedy brings that kind of aggression and that kind of like le- like not saying that Polkenhorn doesn't have that like the same leadership skills as Kennedy but Kennedy is very vocal and like uh, has that kind of aggression and you know, she's got that, she's going to, you know, if she needs to kick someone, she'll probably kick someone to get the ball. And I think they kind of missed that a bit against England where they were not necessarily daunted, but like, it's like the same thing Katrina Gorey has where she's like, if sometimes I'm just going to like, I need to like assert my dominance, like, and just like, if I collect a bit of a player, then, you know, so be it sort of thing. And I think they, they missed the urgency that Kennedy at times brings against England. So that's that's my piece on Alana Kennedy. But yeah, just wanted to touch on, as you said, Kira Cooney-Cross. I mean, I came into this tournament not... A, like, I thought she was a handy player. I never thought she was a great player. I kind of thought she was a bit overrated coming in. Um, and I, But I think I was quite impressed with her. I think the way... Her and Cricketry Gore have a very good partnership and I think they uh, both complement each other really, really well. Um, Katrina, I think, is very good in those like early phases of possession, playing out from the back because she's really, um, you know, she's always wanting the ball. And I know she kind of she's a bit risky, and her distribution and kind of like re- retention of possession at times this tournament wasn't the cleanest, and she gave the ball away a bit. But she's the thing that I like with her is she's always offering him that kind of like between the lines, trying to get on the ball. And more times than not, she's actually going to get the ball and progress the ball up the pitch. Um, which, you know, like, it's really important that, you know, if you have a six, you need a six who, like, the best sixes in the world are the ones who are going to drop in, receive a ball, and try and move a ball up the pitch to feet. And that's something Katrina Gori does really well, even when she, like, you know, is a bit sloppy with her touch or anything. It's normally she's trying to do, like, the, the thing which will help her team, which I really appreciate. And I don't think Kira Cooney Cross does that as well in that, uh, you know, in that, first third in my opening kind of like phases of possession. I think where she really impressed me this tournament was in the middle third where she kind of showed a propensity to kind of dribble, take people on in the middle of a pitch, which Gory, you know, Gory can do, but it's not her, you know, forte. And I thought that, you know, 
like she had she wanted to play you know forward passes a bit more than I'd seen her. She wanted to take a few more risks on the ball in the right areas, which I hadn't seen from her previously. Um, you know, I still think there's a few things she needs to work on in terms of. Um, I noticed a couple of times like she'll get she'd get the ball and then kind of go back into the same area when she could potentially just open out the pitch and kind of like there were options kind of on the other side. But like she's still 21. That's the sort of thing she'll learn as she'll get old. She gets older and. Um, yeah, I like her emergence has been really impressive for me personally because you know I didn't f- think she you know I still I was I still think Katrina Gorey is slightly more important, but I came out of this tournament with a lot higher kind of like feeling towards Cooney Cross than I actually you know ex- had coming in, so that's a good thing. Yeah, Cooney Cross strikes me like, Gorey strikes me as more of a six, right? Like a, a traditional is, yeah. stick your foot in. Stick your foot in. If if I break your leg, then it's your fault your leg was there kind of player. Right. Whereas <laughs> Cooney Cross, Cooney Cross, at least this tournament, struck me as more of a, an eight in the sense that I agree with you. I think her ball distribution probably was a little bit up and down. But in terms of running with the ball, I think that's something that I hadn't seen before. And I agree with you completely that she hadn't shown that sort of thing yet. And there were moments where she would get the ball and I think she would have a runner out wide, whether it was Rasso or Ford, and she'd frustratingly, and it's not a problem unique to her, but they frustratingly they'd turn back inside or, you know, not keep some width or go backwards. And that's just something that every player does it. And it's just going to be a, a bane of my existence watching my teams go backwards when, they have options to go forward. And I mean, if I was Antipostokoglu, I probably would have blown a gasket at that. But that's something that she'll learn with time. But yeah, I think her uniqueness in, in the way she was able to carry the ball forward leads me to believe that, yeah, she, she is more of an eight moving forward. And it's a personnel issue. I don't really know. I don't have any of the answers, but I just wonder if in this next cycle, they might start tinkering with maybe a midfield three or, you know, like what, with twin eights or whatever they do I don't know who would be the other eight I don't think Mary Fowler would probably benefit from playing further up the pitch I think I want to keep her closer to goal but just I think I I think Fowler you know the way she tries to receive between lines I think she might actually work in that eight role but like I'd need to I want to see it first you know like I can't say with like any confidence that I think um, you know this is just going off what I've seen from her in a in a national team jersey, I don't watch as much WSL, so maybe she plays a bit deeper for Man City. Uh, but, you know, I think she could work in that kind of dual eight role, especially if she's got another eight beside her. But, yeah, like, I'd like to see it first. I wouldn't be like, we need to start start her as an eight in, like, big games sort of thing. Like, it's, it's something she needs to kind of no, show that she can not. grow into. Yeah, like, I'm just throwing, I'm throwing shit against the wall, seeing what <laughs> sticks, you know? <laughs> I mean, what they really anyone else in the squad because we didn't see most of them. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm sure we'll get onto that now. But like Alex Chidiak, Julie Dolan, medalist for the last year, and you know she, I she, I mean, she came off the bench when we were two goals down against Nigeria, and created chances and looked like you know she wants the ball to feet. She's energetic. She's creative, and just like we needed that against like. Maybe she doesn't start against England or Sweden, but maybe she's used, you know, to rotate like 
maybe they would have bought should have bought off Cooney Cross like earlier against like Denmark when that game was won, or maybe Chidiak should have seen more time against France to rest up other players because rather than you know to try and chase that win. Um, but yeah, like you know, she's a really you know fun player, um, really really engaging personality as well. Um, you know, which isn't why she should be starting, but it just kind of like it makes you it makes her very easy to root for and like um in a kind of mixed zone post game um she was talking about a bronze medal game oh, this is after the england game she was talking about uh like oh no she wants a bronze medal she's like what do, what do we get if we win third to anna dong who's a matilda's matilda's like media manager and she was like oh like you get like a bronze medal but perhaps you'd like a plush of like tazuni the mascot because chidiak is a um like a big pe- fan of penguins and loves Tazuni. There's a whole like, like Chidiak and Tazuni are like, uh, there's a whole, there's a great o- article on Optus Sport by Isabel Coots about Tazuni and Alex Chidiak. Go read it. It's amazing. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, like Chidiak was talking about how she hadn't been able to celebrate with a real life Tazuni, like the, ma- like the life size, like mascot, which kind of roams around the stadium. And she was saying, like, she's like, yeah, Tazuni's been ghosting me. I just want to get, like, a cup of tea with her and hang out. But she, like, she leaves, like, before... She leaves before the game. Like, like I don't see her after the game. Where does she go? <laughs> um, yeah, like, I, I can't comment on the relationship between Alex Shudiak and a, and a penguin. But <laughs> just in, in terms of... In terms of the actual on on the field stuff I, I I think we're kind of morphing into dis- discussion about Tony and like tactics and all that so I guess we'll just put all this here um, there was a little bit of frustration on my point of view about the the role that and I guess the usage that someone like Van Egmond got playing further forward because I just wasn't really sure what she was bringing to the team because I I feel like when Van Egmond's on the pitch, we resort to this more direct, pureless ball, route one kind of thing, because I think her strength is being that kind of pillar to target further up the field, and then she can bring in players around her. But I don't really think that was effective in, against any of the teams we played, especially against England with Millie Bright and Jess Carter. They were just eating that up all day. So I, I think there was a little bit of a rigidity around that that rotation specifically. And I don't know if Chidiak is a direct comp for Van Egmond in terms of Tony would have played one or the other. Like, I don't know, probably not. But thinking out loud, I think there was a little bit of, at least for me, an annoyance in, I guess, the usage and the, the, the big role that Van Egmond got when I wasn't really sure what the point of difference that she was bringing was compared to someone like Chidiak or even giving Courtney Vine more minutes later in the tournament after she started and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think... I I think Van Egmond is like technically very good, you know, really good passer, like like very kind of like accomplished kind of skills wise. But I think awareness she struggles a bit. Like, um, and I think also like the like so when she sits deep, I don't think we see the best of her because you know she's a bit kind of cautious as a as a deeper central midfielder doesn't get the ball up the pitch and when she does it's normally like just kind of like long ball long hopeful balls over the top sort of thing uh where you know she she's better in the final third but the way that the Matildas were trying to play where they're playing trying to play this counter-attacking game is kind of like very 
you know, we're going to sit deep and, you know, hit you on the break sort of thing. Van Ekman isn't the most athletic of players. Like, so she was being asked to do a lot from like a pressing point of view and, and also just like, and a counter-attacking point of view, but it's like, well, she's not the most dynamic of players. So it's like, you're trying to counter with a, with a 10 who isn't the most of like, kind of like mobile of players, um, you know, and, and then when she's kind of like gets the ball under pressure, then she's going to, you know, go backwards or go sideways. And it doesn't really kind of work. And I think Chidiak is like definitely more dynamic. And, you know, I would have liked to have seen more as more of her. And yeah, like, it's just one of those things where you, I can understand like why he went with her against, um, you know, Canada, like when they were a couple of goals up and they were just like, right, we just need Van Egmont to, oh, against Ireland, I think it was, when Van Egmont came in and just tried to like slow play down a bit when Ireland was kind of had their tails up later. But yeah, I just don't think she was quite right for the way the Matildas were trying to play. And yeah, it was a bit frustrating at times. Now, let, oh, I want to wind it back to the France game. I don't think we have to talk about the actual game because that was 120 minutes of, you know, panic and heart, heart-wrenching, heart you know, back and forth. And especially when France scored, and it was a, a great call by the referee, by the way, just a, a really great call on that foul. Just one of the best refereeing decisions I've ever seen. But the <laughs> the penalty shootout, just honestly one of the worst things in sport when you have an emotional investment in it as a neutral like yeah. the Sweden USA shootout was great I oh, loved that was it. great loved every second of it the Australia France penalty shootout like just the biggest piece of shit I hated every second of it it sucked <laughs> um where we oh, that's the, yeah you're at the wedding I was at a I was at a um a pub just in Hobart City and there was two TVs at this pub and the way the pub is kind of set up it's like a long bit and then there's like another on, like alco like enclave whatever you call it around to the side where yeah. the other TV is and so there's the, the bars at the front there's like the TVs above the bar and then this other TV kind of around to the side we were sitting around to the side at this table and that TV was I assume opt- the Optus broadcast because that was like live because that was at least 30 seconds, 40 seconds ahead of the TV at the bar. <laughs> so we would cheer, we would react, and we would do something. And then like you'd hear half a minute later the the same thing. <laughs> but then when the penalty shootout came, everyone, just, I think everyone had cottoned on at that point and everyone just rushes to surround this other TV. And I'm sitting with my mates and one of them is like, tell us, we were sitting with a few people who like weren't as into football. Maybe they hadn't witnessed the penalty shootout as a fan. And one of our mates is like banging on whatever you do, do not celebrate early because you don't want to be that person that celebrates early and then it gets turned around on you. So just don't <laughs> react or like mildly, but but no celebrations. The first penalty gets saved. Everyone celebrates. Even the guy <laughs> that's telling people not to celebrate. So like everyone's just losing their minds. Um, and then I was kind of watching it. I had, I had I was wearing a scarf and I was like half covering my face. I was just sitting, I was sitting in a corner quietly, like not really engaging with anyone. Or like whenever a France player would walk up to the spot, I'd go to my group, oh, she looks nervous. Yeah, she doesn't want this. She looks nervous. She doesn't want and it. Then she'd and then she'd <laughs> And then she'd slot it. And like, ah, oh, damn it. And then when Maka steps up to take her penalty, I was like, oh, just imagine the scenes after she saved two and then she's the one that gets to 
like she gets to finish it off and then she just absolutely rattles it against the post and then the whole bar just collapses and we're like oh god here we go again um yeah. and then claire hunt steps up to do the same thing and like i was saying to my group like this this french keeper if she's the the penalty specialist i hate to see how bad the first one was because she wasn't really getting near any of them yeah and then she pulls out an absolute worldie of a save against claire hunt and i'm just like are you serious and then Maka with the double save because she steps over the line like there. Like where was that? Like in the Olympics against Brazil when that keeper was like, oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, just yeah. I think yeah. So there was a lot of a lot of roller coaster of emotion, and then when 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 Vine time hits that last penalty, yeah, the bar went up. It was just one of those moments where the suffering was worth it in the end. But God, it was terrible. Yeah, so um, as, as I kind of mentioned earlier, I was in Bali for a wedding uh, and the, the ceremony was actually meant to start at five, which was good because it uh, was good initially because the game was going was gonna to kick off at three. So it was like, oh, perfect. I'll, you know, the game will kick off at three. It'll be done by like five if it's wrapped up in 90 minutes. So I'll just go straight from the game into the, the ceremony sort of thing. Uh, that didn't end up. And then the ceremony got for, bought forward like by an hour, by an hour to four, so it basically became. I didn't see any of the first half. I listened to it on like radio, and then after the ceremony concluded, uh, I think there was like five minutes left in the game. So we, uh, me and my mates, uh, we were staying at the Hilton in Nusa Dua in Bali. I highly recommend it. Uh, great spot, and uh, we just ran up to. Uh, we just ran up to uh, one of my mates' hotel room and just watched the, the like extra time on his phone. Uh, so, and then towards the end of extra time, we got a knock on the door, and the groomsman, one of the groomsmen, and the groom both came in to watch like the end of extra time and penalties with us, uh, which was a collective like nervy decision. And then we uh, <laughs> went. So when Arnold had her penalty to win it. I actually recorded it because I was like, this is it. Like, we're going to win. And then uh, she hits the <laughs> post. Oh, no. she, she hit the post and I was... And um, in, the ensu- in the aftermath, just for, like in the ensuing just like turmoil, uh, the, groom- one, the groomsman kicked a chair in disgust and the groom in his full wedding tuxedo just salmoned onto the bed, just like, just out of pure, just like... <laughs> <laughs> it was... It was great. It was just it was a moment of like lighthearted levity in what was like a very stressful uh, moment. So that was really uh, kind of like it was a really good experience watching the shootout with him because we we're all just like on the same roller coaster and it was just horrible. And when Claire Hunt went up, I was like, I didn't feel confident at all. I was just like, oh no, I just don't oh. feel. And then and then she missed, and I was like. Oh, see, I was, I was like, kind of like, oh, I've been proven right. And then you watch the replay and I was like, oh my God, that's actually like an incredible save. Like she's at, the keeper's just been like very, like has pulled yeah. off an outstanding save there. And yeah, the Macca double save was, was great. I mean, Courtney Vine to win it was just like pandemonium. Like I've jumped up and like, I've given the groomsmen a hug and we've all kind of like just jumped in a circle. We're just like dancing around and just like yelling and just, yeah, it was a, and then we had the wedding reception to go to, so it was just like we just kind of kept the party rolling, sort of thing. It was uh, it was a great, yeah, 
a, a great day all up. Like wedding was beautiful as well. Just have, being able to kind of witness that Matilda's uh, penalty shootout together was awesome. Yeah, and it brings up an interesting, I guess, societal thing, the way you've described your penalty shootout experience. And I think it was Adam Liao, formerly of MasterChef. Um, I think I don't know what he does now. Some Probably an SBS like cooking thing. Anyway, point is, I saw something he said and he was like, oh, as a regular attendee and watcher of women's sports, yada, 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 this is the first time I can remember that it, I've, made plans with just like the fellas yeah to get around and watch the matildas or to watch a game of women's sport which seems like if you just say that it's like oh yeah whatever but realistically you go back and think about it like it's i can't think of examples where i've you know made plans with the boys to go watch you know women's soccer or like women's cricket it's just not to intersperse this discussion with i guess my own readings of society not to get too darwinian about it all <laughs> but it seems like there's been a real interesting shift in the way that like, yeah, this has brought people together, but it has also like, you wouldn't think that like a group of men for better yeah. or worse would be making plans to, to go watch the Matildas, like go go to a pub or go to the stadium or, you know, it's just, it's been great. Yeah. And I think it's the culmination of something like, it's not the fact that, you know, we've known everyone who kind they've had this kind of journey to where they are. It's not like they're overnight. They've sprung up overnight and had this incredible run. Like we've all known they've been good for a while, and I think everyone just kind of getting around the World Cup and being like, "Oh, like this is a huge deal," sort of thing. Like mid tournament, um, <clears throat> like and just kind of go, getting on, getting into the spirit of a World Cup, and then as part of that, getting into the Matildas. Like, everyone has just embraced the tournament as a whole, um, and, it, like, part of that has been embracing the Matildas. And, yeah, it's just like, like, like you say, like, I think it's a real big moment for women's sport. Like, I've been to, like... Like, I remember going with some mates to watch, like, the AFL women's games before, but not, like, not to the same level, and it's, like... It's obviously a very different like crowd dynamic. It's like a lot smaller scale sort of thing, and yeah, it it is a very different kind of like thing. Now, from the highs of the penalty shootout, I, I don't really want to to dissect the England and Sweden games in their totality because I think I'll a I'll get very sad, and b will be here for far too long, but. <laughs> I, th- I think it's important to note, and it, and it goes back, I guess, to what we touched on earlier about the whole fear of criticism thing. I think it is important to note that, yes, finishing fourth at a, at a World Cup is a tremendous achievement, and that, that should be recognized, that shouldn't be forgotten. But at, on the same token, that the manner in which that they've lost these last two games, it does leave a really disappointing... Mm-hmm sour note because they'd never really gave themselves a chance and I think against England they were passive and they just allowed themselves to get dictated and there was that obviously that brief period of just blind hope between Sam Kerr scoring and then you know Ellie Carpenter having an absolute nightmare in defense but they never really gave themselves much of a shout in that game and then against Sweden I actually thought they played worse against Sweden as a whole than they did against England because I think by that point they were just they were they were wrecked both physically and emotionally. Like you could see the toll of the tournament, the lack of rotation in the squad, 
all of those sort of things tied together and it was just a real perfect storm of misery um and then then yeah sweden just really outclassed us whether you think the penalty was soft or not kind of irrelevant because i don't really think we were were touching sweden in that game just the way we were playing it was a really disappointing end to a, a really great tournament i think that's important to note but yeah just really sour yeah, the, you know, I think you summed it up well. Like, the England game, they just sat too deep and let England dictate tempo and, like, control of that game. And when you, you know, that's the risky run when you kind of don't, when you don't rotate the squad. Like, that's, I mean, I can understand not rotating the starting 11, but, like, the lack of substitutions and, like, the times the substitutes uh, were introduced without, like, it didn't help the players. Like, they were out on their legs and, like, as soon as England went 2-1 up in that game, you could just tell, like, it was over sort of thing. Like, I know we had a couple of half chances with, you know, Kerr had a couple of good chances, you know, on another day, maybe she buries one. But, like, the longer that game went on, it was kind of like, you could just tell it was heading towards an England victory. And, you know, they they controlled that game, really. Like, outside of, like, ten the 10 minutes spell after Kerr scored, I like, Australia weren't a better team in that game. Um England were the ones creating chances who looked better, who were, you know, like, like I said, like we just, when you give Kira Walsh and Georgia Stanway that much time on the ball, they are just going to, you know, pass and pass and pass and they're going to move a team out of shape. And, you know, even if they're not being particularly incisive or like creating holes in the defense, they're just, but just by the mere shifting of the ball from one side to the other, they're like, Create, slowly creating gaps they're tiring the Matildas down and you know like listening to um, uh, the podcast Ian Wright was on um, for an English perspective it was really in- interesting him listening to him saying he could not believe that they that the Matildas sat so deep especially with that vocal kind of home crowd he was like they needed to use that and they needed to press high and unsettle England because then you bring the crowd into the game but the crowd was like taken out of the game because they were on the back foot for so much of it and you know like just you could tell the players looked tired against England and they just looked out on their feet against Sweden and it just wasn't the same there was no kind of like Kerr's goal kind of gave him a bit of an adrenaline shot against England, against Sweden, they just like, they were lacking, just not, they weren't lacking in spirit, but you could just see like, Gorry looked tired, Caitlin Ford was just like, for most anonymous, she's been all tournament, like Ellie Carpenter, who, you know, was only a few months coming back, uh, removed from coming back from an ACL tear, she played nearly like every moment of this tournament, up, up until like the third place playoff. And it's kind of like, she, she looked exhausted against England as well, I think that's partly why that, goal that Lauren Hebb goal happened because you know she she was just kind of dilly-dallying a bit and I think you know that's mental exhaustion for you I think if that chance against England happened in the first five minutes of that game she probably just hoofs it clear but she was trying to get a bit too cute with it and yep. that's probably a bit of like fatigue coming into it and so yeah I mean like you can't I'm not sure you can really blame the players that much because I think like they get they gave it their all and this is where I think Tony Gustafson does, does deserve criticism because he could have rotated players like Claire Wheeler didn't feature at, at you know at all during the tournament uh, Courtney Nevin only got like twenty minutes off the bench at the end Charlie Grant got like five minutes off the, at the end against Canada um, you know Chidiak should have been used more Tamika Yallop 
uh, barely saw the field. Admittedly, she came, you know, she hurt her ankle against France in the last game before the World Cup, but, you know, she still hurt her ankle. Claire, you know, the lack of Claire Wheeler was really disappointing. Um, you know, we knew, and also, like, we knew the substitutes he was going to use. We knew he was going to bring on Courtney Vine. We knew he was going to bring on Emily Van Egmond. And it's just like, he f- it felt like there was, he had his 12 or th- 13 players and just, like, it was just such a top-heavy team. And some of those players could have been rested, like, against, like, Canada when you're, like, I think Katrina Gori came off with, like, a minute to go against Canada. And it's just like, what's the point of that? Like, we were 3-0 up with, like, 20 minutes to play. Like, she could have come off at any point during, and, you know, rested her legs a bit and... Yeah, it all just adds up. It's a Sweden game, like, I just don't think there's anything to talk about from a performance perspective because it was just so tired and just, like... You can see, like, it, like yeah. it was just, like... The only player who I think came out of that Sweden game was... Who, with any kind of, like, you know, deserves... Who had, like, a really good performance was Mackenzie Arnold, who I think has had a breakout tournament. She's been really good all tournament. And, yeah, like... Um, the Sweden game was just like it was such a boring game. It was just kind of like you could see where it was like going and culminating. It was just yeah, really disappointing. Yeah, I mean that Sweden game was a product of the environment that had been created earlier in the tournament. Um, I'm glad you touched on Claire Wheeler because I think outside of Chidiak, that was the one that kind of surprised me like that she didn't get any minutes in the entire tournament. And it's like, well, you see the amount of running that these midfielders are doing. You've got a really good chance to give them... Anytime you can steal rest in a tournament is gold dust, especially for your midfielders who are running so much. So against Canada, even against Denmark later in that game, I think there was prime opportunities. So... I think that's honestly that could be even more confusing than the 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 lack of Chidiac minutes. Maybe not. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch. But you know that both of their usage was just yeah. I really don't know. Um, I was going to say something about Ben's England game, and I've completely forgotten it now. Oh, I don't think England actually <laughs> were like we made England look a lot better than I think what they actually were, just because of our timidity. I think it, we made them look like. It was like Brazil versus American Samoa out there. Just in the attitudes that we were going out there with. And like England were better, don't get me wrong. But they didn't have to really do much to earn it. And no, you we let them with, like we I think that we sat back. Yeah. 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 But then also just... when we had the ball, there was a there was a lot of route one stuff mm. and it's funny that, like, who would have known that the, the two centre-backs who deal with Sam Kerr every day in training would be able to handle, set, like, long balls to Sam Kerr. Like, Millie Bright and yeah. Jess Carter, two Chelsea teammates of Sam Kerr. Like, shockingly, it didn't work. I don't know. That, that's just... That's yeah. really frustrating to me. I think the, the biggest takeaway from that game against England was I just thought England were better. Like, I think they were just a, well, a better coach team, like... Serena Weigman, I think, completely outcoached Tony G. Um, they, was, they were a well-oiled machine. They did... They, it wasn't that they completely were, like, dominated that game, but they just took their chances when they came. They didn't... Outside of, like, you know, a couple of, you know, 
the ha- the chances that Kerr had. Like, we didn't create anything that game. And even the Kerr goal, like, that came out of absolutely nothing. And apart from that, I thought, like you said, Greenwood, yeah. Brighton, Carter were really good that game. Like, they just kind of dealt with a... Um, you know, Millie Bright is a massive human being as well. Like, she looks like a giant out there. Like, she's... she And just, like, when you're playing long balls to a giant, like, she's going to win it. Like, she's very... You know, she was very good. Um, I can't, like, I was really impressed with her. Like, the fact that she's doing this without Liam, with, you know, England just able to roll out three pretty good centre-backs whilst Leah, Leah Williamson is not even in the team. And the fact that, yeah, going forward, they don't even have yeah. Fran Kirby or Beth Mead and they just still have players like, you know, Hemp and Russo and um, Ella Toon was great. I thought they just, you know, I think it just speaks to the depth that they have and... Um, but also, just like they just did their jobs, they did exactly what they needed to do, and like credit to them. Yeah, I mean, Chloe Kelly's a bench player. The top scorer in the WSL uh, daily is playing wing back. So, like, yeah. <laughs> like, what are we doing here? Um, what do you think of England's rugby tactics? Well, like. But, I mean, they they got away with a... It was kind of weird, because, obviously, uh, Carter got booked, like, less than 10 minutes in. And, um, you know, for, and I thought that was a really good call from the referee to, like, book her. Because it was a cynical challenge on Kerr. She was just trying to stop her from getting away. I had no issues with the referee giving her a yellow card there. But then Australia didn't really target Carter out of that. And then, like, the ref kind of... Wasn't it Greenwood? Was it... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it may have been Greenwood, sorry. Yeah, they didn't... Yeah, Greenwood, but they didn't target Greenwood after that, um, which they should have. Like, if you've got a player on a yellow card for 80 minutes, like, you'd have to run at them, especially a centre-back. You have to try and, like, have a go at them because even if it, even if you're not going to draw a foul, they might it might draw a mistake because they, they're mindful that they can't foul because they might get sent off. Uh, and, yeah, like, they didn't do that very well. I thought that, yeah, like, it was a very physical game. Like, Katrina Gorey and Hayley Razzo left a few feet like studs in as well like I don't think the ref <laughs> controlled that it was weird. the ref gave the early yellow but then didn't really control the game well after that and I like I listened to that kind of in right pot and I was kind of moaning about ref being bad but I thought I don't think she was terrible but I just don't think she managed the game that well and I'm kind of surprised that she's been given the final we're obviously no. recording this before the final but um, yeah so hopefully she has a bit of a better outing but will be interesting to see I, I um, I did enjoy the token yellow in like the ninety seventh minute after <laughs> half an hour of time wasting. I thought that was quite funny. Yeah, and that was the other thing. Like England were just time wasting with about like once they went two one up, they were time wasting. And again, like the ref in that situation, she needs to cotton on. Like she like she can see their time wasting. She needs to stamp her authority early and go no. Like you're getting away with it this time. Next time one of your players does this, I'm booking you because it's too early to be time wasting, sort of thing. And yeah, like it just, I actually think the, I, I, um, um, I think the level of refereeing this tournament has actually been really good. Um, I think that was the one game I've watched and gone, I don't think the refs had a, like a great game here, but even then I don't think she was like terrible. I think it was just like one of those, like they're not always going to get it right. But for the most part, I've actually been quite impressed with the refereeing this tournament. I, do, I do, not to, not to bang on about the refs in this specific game. I just wonder if the the new um 
interpretation of added time contributes to the leniency around time wasting. Like, well, we'll just add it on. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah. And I guess one more refereeing question before we go to the the funner parts of this is penalty or no penalty against Sweden? It's a tough... Like, I don't have an issue with that being given as a penalty because, like, when someone clips your heels from behind, like, especially if... Like, I know it wasn't malicious at all. It was just, like, accidental from Claire Hunt. But, like, I don't think she... She didn't react in a way where she felt the contact and then went down. I think she's just, like... Like, I think it has genuinely, like, caused it to fall over. Um, like, when someone clips your heels from behind and you're not expecting it, it can often, like, lead you to lose your footing. Even if it's not a particularly, like... You know, it wasn't like she smacked a heel, but I think there was... It was one of those ones where it's kind of like... I don't mind if that's not given a penalty, but I also don't have an issue with it being given as a penalty sort of thing, and... It's, it's not a refereeing blunder for me. Like, yeah. I completely understand why it was given. The, the second I saw the replay, I was like, oh, that's... Yeah. That we're in trouble here. Um, And yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's like... And it's the same thing where it's like a player's going at such speed, it takes, like, just the slightest nick for them to go, to go down. And then it, it, people who maybe don't watch as much or haven't played... They wouldn't like, oh, it's a dive. Like, well, no, you could literally takes like one blade of grass out of place, really, if you're going at such speed and you get like the slightest touch. Like, you, you're gonna, it's just physics, you're gonna fall down. So, yeah, I mean, I thought it was soft, but I also thought it was gonna be a penalty. So, I'm like, uh, I was upset at the time, but I mean, it's like, it's probably the right call. I don't really have an issue with it. Yeah. Um, Something we forgot to mention, actually, and it's only really come out in the last day or so. Uh, the Americans obviously had a disaster tournament by their own lofty standards, and they have since parted know, with their what a shame. head coach, Vlatko, Vlatko, last name I can't pronounce, Andonovsky, I think it is. Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. Um, you can call him... Um, what's, it, what's the stand-up comedian um, who he looks like? I can't remember what his name is is it Tim Robinson? No. I... Yeah, Tim oh, Robinson. I think you should he looks guy. like this. Yeah, yeah, he looks a lot like uh, Brando <laughs> Um, Obviously, the rumours have since started, considering his previous association, that Tony G might be getting a call from the US FA. Um, I don't really know where this conversation is going. Just thought I'd bring it up while we've got it. Um, interesting. So that we might be looking for another coach. I, I do think it's important to, to note. I, tactically, I think Gustafsson's had his deficiencies and has made errors, but I think what's clear to me is he's clearly got some level of motivational skill around this squad, and the players do clearly respect him and enjoy playing for him. So I think in that sense, that's an important distinction to make. Um, whether it's worth fighting to keep him, I if, if anything eventuates from this or whether they even want to keep him anyway after the World Cup, I'm sure there'll be some sort of review as there always is after a major tournament. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting one to bring up. Yeah, I think... Some, I mean, like you say, I think Gustafsson has his uh, deficiencies. You know, I've been 
quite critical of him. But like he also deserves a lot of credit for the way he has turned around this team's fortunes, you know, on multiple occasions. Um, you know, both in tournament and out of tournament. You know, I keep even going back to last year. The fact he, the way he moved Caitlin Ford from the left wing to like a second striker, I thought was you know, and the way you know, she, her, and Sam Kerr were playing in some of those friendlies towards the end of last year was like really, really promising. So he obviously. You know, he's not afraid to you know, change things if something's not working to try and, you know, like um, innovate and invig- invigorate as well. So, you know, like he, do- he does deserve some credit as much as, you know, I think he got some things wrong during this tournament. You know, it's not that he is necessarily a, a bad coach. It's just, did he get the most out of the team? Um, and in some respects he did. And in some respects, you know, he didn't. But I will also say, you know, the grass isn't always greener. Like, there's no guarantee that we just find a coach who's better than, you know, than Gustafsson. Like, I think it's all well and good for yep. us to be like, oh, yeah, we'll get, you know, like, we'll get, we'll get, we'll find someone better. But it's like, well, who? Like, you know, like, I don't know who's out there who like is available. Who, <laughs> yeah, like, I, I mean, we don't, I'm not sure we really want a coaching swap after, the, like, the way the US performed at this tournament. Although, I will say they looked a lot better than Sweden um, in that second round game, and I thought Sweden were. I mean, they obviously were a bit lucky to get past the US on penalties, but they made you know they beat Japan and actually played really well, and could have very well beaten Spain and gone through to a final. So it was um, it was interesting, that's for sure. Like the way they kind of ebbed and flowed throughout the tournament, because again, like I watched them against the US, I watched them against South Africa early in the tournament and wasn't impressed, but I thought they were you know far better than Australia in the third game third place game yeah it's the the ebbs and flows of a tournament right because you think back to like England were on the verge of getting knocked out by Nigeria and now they've just waltzed their way straight into a final so like you know it, it it's always about how you perform on the day like form doesn't really matter when you get to the later stages of a tournament sadly for us Uh, okay, so just some just some rapid fire stuff. Um, goal of the tournament, I guess, both for us. I think it's probably only one real answer for our goal of the tournament, but just also overall in the other options you can think of. I think the Sam Kerr one was great, but I also think the um, Marsha Cox Thunderbolt for Panama against um, uh, France was just like... Like, that's one of those moments where it's like, you can't hit a ball better than that. Like, she just put it top bins. Like, the amount of swerve and dip she had on it was just nuts. Uh, I don't think there's anything better than those two goals. Like, I think, you know, like, one's a dead ball, one's kind of an open play, whichever, you know, like, 1A, 1B, whichever way you want to have them. I, I think they both have pretty strong arguments for being goal of the tournament. I don't think anything's better than that. You just taken my other option so <laughs> I, was, I had literally looked up the Mart, the, the Marta Cox one before we started this so uh, does the I, I, I resisted saying this because I don't want to be the killjoy I don't want to be that guy but does the fact that Kerr's goal had a slight deflection ruin it for you a little bit did it have a reflect, deflection I don't think it did it's it, it nicked Bright's foot which kind of I don't think Erps is stopping it either way but there's always that 
if you watch a replay, it's slightly nicks off Millie Bright's foot as she steps out. Nah, nah, nah. Sorry to ruin that for you. I'm, I'm not, nah, nah. I refuse, I refuse to watch that replay, and so therefore I will continue living in this world. But <laughs> no, that doesn't, that doesn't change at all, because just the velocity with which it was hit, like, Erps wasn't getting near that. No, Sam Kerr owns Earps, as we all know, either way. Yep. So I don't think that really matters. Um, okay, who's, who is your player of the tournament for Australia? I, I think just like, I think across the entire tournament, it's probably like just like averaging out. Like if I was just looking at like my play, the player ratings I've done through work, I'd probably say averaging out, it's probably Mackenzie Arnold or Mary Fowler. But I think Caitlin Ford had like the Caitlin Ford against Canada and Denmark were the two best performances any Australian. They might be like the two best performances any Australian has ever had at a like a World Cup because she was unstoppable in both of those games. Um, yeah, I would. I think like across you know in terms of average like rating, it would probably be Mackenzie Arnold. Uh, or, um, yeah, probably Mackenzie Arnold or Mary Fowler, but Caitlin Ford at her best is, like, just scary. Yeah, I'd say I'd argue Ford had the biggest high across the whole tournament with, the, with those games against Canada and Denmark. I, I think if you had asked me this after the France game, I would have actually been tempted to throw Claire Hunt's name in the ring because I thought she had a phenomenal tournament, especially given that she was the most inexperienced Matilda in the entire squad, and she was thrown in to be a day-one starter next to Alana Kennedy, and I thought she acquitted herself quite well, um, especially getting that first-hand view of her against Denmark from sitting behind the goal in that second half. Every long ball that came in, she dealt with it just easily. Um, but then I think, you know, she probably, like a lot of the defence, fell off a little bit at the, um, you know, in those last two games. I I agree. I think over the, the balance of the entire tournament, Mackenzie Arnold is probably the the name. I, and I said before as well, I, I was so impressed with how Cooney cross-played that I would like to throw her name in there as well. But I'm happy to seed with you on Mackenzie Arnold. But for an overall player of the tournament then who do you think or who would you give it to uh i haven't watched as much of the knockout stages as i would have liked just because like you know work and travel um unfortunately but probably i think hermoso from hermosa hermosa is it hermoso hermosa from um the spanish striker yeah i think she's she's really fun to watch i know she hasn't like um, just like it's not like she's just been like dead eyed in front of goal, but I just think she's been probably the most kind of like fun player to watch in terms of like from you know when I have been able to watch Spain and yeah I'm going with her. Lauren James probably would have had a good uh, uh, like chance, but then she yeah. stepped on a Nigerian player, <laughs> which gave birth to some of the greatest memes. <laughs> Uh, in a similar English vein, I think the English attackers kind of stopped and started throughout the tournament, especially against Nigeria. But I think, you know, they, they'd never really 
clicked into full gear up until they played against us, but their defense has just been outstanding the entire tournament. So for that reason, I'm going to give player of the tournament to Millie Bright as the captain and leader of that defense. I think she's bound. Like, I don't want to call a defender unstoppable because that just doesn't sound right. She's been un, uh, impenetrable, unpassable, like whatever superlative you give a defender. I, I'm giving it to Millie Bright, even, she, even though she deflected Sam Kerr's goal. That, that's very fair, apart from a deflection which I refuse to believe happened. <laughs> well, it's history's written by the victors, so just pretend it never happened. Uh, <laughs> the biggest surprise of the tournament for you? Germany going out in the group stage. Like, that was... That was shocking, like especially after they won their opening game six nil. Like, I wonder what the percentage, like the odds of them going out after that game would have been, and the fact that it, you know, like the fact that they lost to Colombia but then couldn't beat South Korea somehow was just nuts. Yeah, that's great. Again, great memes of like the screenshot of that the, of the match card from that game and going, guess which one of these two teams is in the, in the knockout <laughs> stages um, between Germany and Morocco. Uh, for me, I think similar vein, I think uh, Canada's capitulation was a big surprise for me. But in a more positive light, I think Colombia's run up until the, um, the, the last eight where they gave England a really good run for their money as well and then just the play of Caicedo and Santos across their tournament obviously known players in Colombian football and Caicedo plays for Real Madrid I'm not sure who Santos plays for but I think uh, Colombia's run to the last eight was another really uh, good moment for me and just the colour that they brought to the tournament as well maybe not surprising so I probably misanswered my own question but I don't care it's my show so I'm going to say Colombia's run (laughs) And I, well, actually, I think I've answered them both with one because the next one was biggest disappointment. So you're probably going to go Germany. Yeah, yeah, it would definitely Germany. <laughs> uh, yeah, Germany, probably Brazil as well. Like they looked so good against Panama in that first game, and then you know that that France game probably could have gone either way. But then not being able to beat uh, Jamaica, just like I didn't think like Jamaica defended really well, but if like Bunny Shaw didn't even have that great a tournament. And, like, Brazil still couldn't beat Jamaica. So, you know, I think they're they're almost equally as disappointing as Germany, except, you know, like, I think Germany were expected to be, like, to go deep into the... a bit deeper into the tournament. Yeah. Um, I've already said Canada. I think it's also fair, given that they are America and their expectations are always, we are the best. (laughs) I think America going out in the last 16 was disappointing for them, but very entertaining for the rest of us. Immense fun. (laughs) And I mean, when... Sorry, just the VAR on that Lena Hurtig penalty. (laughs) Even when they showed the, the actual VAR graphic, I'm still, I'm looking at it going, has that crossed? Yeah. Because, like, I really had to get, like, to within an inch of my screen. And even then, I'm like, I'm just going to believe them that there's a millimeter in this because I really can't tell. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> it'd be funny if like the VAR just like stuffed up or something and like America exited because they showed the wrong image or something or like the VAR gave a false net false positive well, or something <laughs> yeah it's like all the conspiracy theories around the uh, DRS in the ashes about how it was always not out for England and out and out for us I just wonder if the, the delays in showing the VAR replay was so they could just doctor some like they could thin the line or something so the ball would cross Ah, oh, well. Well, the memes were good, and that's all I really cared about. <laughs> and the last thing before we wrap things up, I just want a really rapid-fire prediction, yes or no, uh, through the Matildas. I'm just going to run through them 1 to 23, whether they'll be in the squad in four years' time, and the, wherever the, I don't even know where the next World Cup is. But 1 to 23, don't think about it. Will they be in the next World Cup squad? Lydia Williams. No. Sadly, but no. Courtney Nevin. Maybe. No, probably. That, probably. That's that, that, yes or no? Yes, yeah. Okay, that's a yes. Um, Ivy Lewick. No. Claire Polkinghorn. No. Sad, again, very sadly, but she's played her last World Cup game. Courtney Vine. Yes. Claire Wheeler. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> depends, depends if the coaches. Maybe they'll remember her. Uh, Steph Catley. Yes. Alex Chidiak. Yes. It's probably the same theory as Claire Wheeler, I guess, really. Yeah. Um, Caitlin Ford. Yes. Emily Van Egmond. I'm going to say no. I reckon she will be, you know. I, I, I'd give her a yes, just longevity. Uh, Mary Fowler. Yes, I'm not going to yes. wait for your answer for that, for that <laughs> one. Tegan Micah. Yes, I think Micah. I, how old is Tegan Micah, actually? I think she's... Like I've twenty five. Twenty five, yeah, she'll be there. I didn't think I did I was like I'm pretty sure she's like early mid twenties, but I could be completely wrong. But yes, I think she'll be there. Just signed for Liverpool, yep. so yeah, she'll be there. Yeah. Uh to make Yallop. Ooh, uh I prob probably yes, I kinda of, she's one of those players where I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised either way if she was or wasn't there. I'm going to say yes, but kind of like would would also not be surprised if she wasn't. All right, I'll I'll ignore that horrendous fence sitting on that one. Um, Alana Kennedy. Actually, can I revise? Uh, to make a yellow will be 36 by the next time the next World Cup rolls rolls around. So I'm going to say no. I thought she was a couple of years younger. So, no to Tamika Gallup. Uh, yes to Alana Kennedy, though. Speaking of ages, I actually thought Kennedy was a lot older than what she was. It, it was very jarring when I found out she was only a few months older than me. <laughs> yeah, she it's because she's been around for so long. Like, I just, I'm like, oh, yeah, she must be like 32. And yeah. It's like, no, she's, she's still not quite 30. Yep. Claire Hunt. Yes. 
Uh, Haley Rasso. Yes. Kaya Simon. No, unfortunately. Sadly. Hope she's there. I don't think she will be, though. Mackenzie Arnold. Yes. Katrina Gorry. No, I don't think she will be. I'd love her to be there, but I don't. She's going to be 35 next tournament. I don't. I think she thinks this was her last tournament as well. So you know, like, hopefully she proves us both wrong. But because you know she's an incredible player, but I don't think she's going to be there in four years' time. Sadly. Uh, Sam Kerr. Yes. She's already said she'll be there. So. <laughs> uh, Ellie Carpenter. Yes. Charlie Grant. Yes. And Kara Cooney Cross. Yes. I think the point of that was you, you actually go, you take some time to go through the squad. It is, I think, a little bit younger than people realize. Like, there's not really a lot of old money in here. Like, there's going to be some change, obviously. And then, well, we don't know, like, obviously the, the injuries and form and where people are playing like you, you never know but I think if you just look at this in a vacuum clinically the squad's a lot younger than people I think realise as a whole and that there's some real good foundations here for a, a team that can go a little bit better uh, in four years time where, where is that tournament I don't even know they haven't announced a uh, they haven't announced this venue yet uh, but there's a few uh, you know the favourites are I believe Hang on, let me, I'm just getting this up now. Uh, Brazil is one of them. Uh, USA, Mexico are looking at a joint bid. Uh, South Africa as well. And then uh, the one which interests me the most, I think, is Belgium, Germany, and the Netherlands. Oh, a bit of, well, two-thirds of Benelux. Yeah, exactly. Well, that concludes our portion uh, our discussion i guess of the uh unless you have anything any closing remarks of what's been like in, in all seriousness a really great celebration of women's football a really great tournament both for the matildas and i think a really just great tournament in general obviously we've got the final tonight the time of recording um obviously this prediction won't matter by the time that you hear this because it'll the final will have happened by the time this comes out but I'll ask you anyway. Uh, prediction for the final tonight? Uh, I'm going to say England. Better vibes. <laughs> like you're you're English, aren't you? You're like half English, yeah, English. yeah, yeah. I I think I look. I don't really have a dog in the fight. I I think England wins though. I think I'm going to go two 0 and Kira Walsh for the woman of the match. Where can we find your work? Uh, on the West Australian and personnel.com.au. Uh, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Beyondthefence.com.au. Subscribe and leave a review if you are not subscribed to the show. Um, other than that, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.